If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com headlong and use promo code headlong. Hey there, before we start, just know this episode contains mature content. Previously on Surviving Y2K. In our wildest dreams, it was really going to crash. And we were going to go out in the woods naked with a knife. The shit's coming. We're not done. I don't want you to just sit there and say, oh my God, this terrible thing's going to happen. I'm going to die. Maybe it'd be fun. You buried stuff in Mexico? Yeah. <laughs> in the mountains of Baja. This went on for five years. I mean, this was all I did. So we sold everything, paid off all our debts, used the money that we got to go to Israel. So you guys started dressing differently? Yeah, we dressed in white robes. The Ark of the Covenant is the center of the Holy of Holies. We felt like it was key in the end days. It's hidden somewhere right now. Be rediscovered. Be rediscovered, yeah. You guys were looking for it. I'm Dan Tabersky, and this is Surviving Y2K. Episode 3, December. At midnight on December 31st, this is what could happen. No TV, no transportation, no electricity. All right. Trojan condoms, the most trusted for a most happy new year. We are just days away from New Year's Eve. It's been a long road to get here, and everyone is getting a little slap happy. Raid! Raid, the official killer of the millennium bug, kills bugs dead. But a lot of people aren't laughing at jokey commercials. They're paying more attention to the ones like these. Call now and order your ultimate Y2K survival kit. You get the wind-up and solar-powered flashlight radio, video diagnostic software, food samples, and preparation guide. A $90 value, all for only $49.95. Sales at one Amish supply catalog don't just double or triple in those last weeks. They octuple. Meanwhile, the experts say test everything computerized. Make sure the bug doesn't get you. And so offices and workplaces really do test everything. And little stickers that say certified Y2K compliant begin popping up everywhere. This really happened. Ventilators in hospitals, Y2K compliant. On your computer monitor at work, Y2K compliant. On the bagel warmer in the break room, Y2K compliant. Oh, there will be toast in the new millennium. But forget about the bug for a moment. Just the millennium itself, this giant symbol, it has been bringing up some heavy weirdness. For example, on December 15th, 2,000 cult members appear on an island in the Philippines out of nowhere. An earthquake had forced them out of the elaborate tunnel system they had built to wait out the rain of fire they expected at New Year's. On December 23rd, U.S. gun background checks smashed the previous one-day record, with many people buying the Bushmaster Y2K Limited Edition AR-15 assault rifle, which actually comes with Y2K engraved two inches from the trigger. And perhaps most chilling? Right before Christmas, Monday Night Football fans were confronted at the commercial break for the first time ever with this. What's up? So it's probably not the end of the world, but the apocalypse? There is definitely an argument to be made.
Didn't, didn't we come across by Jericho? Yeah, well, it seems like it. The Jerusalem area, Nablus area, some down by the Dead Sea. I'm looking at a map of Israel with Adair Levan and her son, Mattia. On paper, the state of Israel looks like crazy town. Provisional borders and previous borders and proposed borders, human beings can make a mess of anything. But the names? The names still sound like magic to me. And sometime around Bethlehem. That was like uh, where we lived in the cave that was on the cliff edge. Mm-hmm. That was Tekoa. And then we moved to Jericho, and then we lived in different, a couple different places north of Jericho up along the, the Jordan River here. A few years before, the Levon family left everything behind to live like apostles and dress like the polyphonic spree, white robes and all. Living in caves and growing their own food, manifesting the Bible they believe in into their reality, word for word. But now, with New Year's Eve looming, things in Israel are becoming tense. In Israel today, authorities deport a dozen Americans, part of a Christian group that officials there suspect of planning violent acts to mark the year 2000. Fundamentalist Christians are arriving in droves, and Israeli authorities are getting jittery. Most Christians do not uh, believe in a link between the apocalypse, end of world times, and, uh, and the millennium, but uh, the fears that some might try to force God's hand has, uh, has security concerns. And, for that... and that was the Levant's plan, too, to force God's hand. Not violently, but still, to find the Ark of the Covenant, fulfilling a prophecy that would spark the end of days. You change your names, change your clothes, change your life. You're living biblically. Does it become less hard to imagine that maybe we will find the Ark of the Covenant? Oh, we were really confident we would. We we felt confident that we would find it. What does that entail? How do you, how do you look? How Detective work, trying right. to connect all the dots. You know, you take the stuff from the book of Revelation, and then you look for explanations of it in the Old Testament, and you try to decode it. And we'd go to the library and you know read the original Hebrew. And they are not the only ones looking. This is a thing. Hi, I'm Ron Wyatt. Welcome to the Ark of the Covenant dig. True believers like amateur archaeologist Ron Wyatt had already been searching for years. And just immediately to the left, now this appears to be dried blood. If the Ark exists at all, experts hypothesize perhaps Ethiopia, perhaps Mount Nebo in Jordan. But the Levans are betting on Jerusalem. And it leads them on expeditions into and below the Holy City. Amateur archaeologists are not, um, the Israeli government doesn't like them. So when you're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, that's risky business. I don't know how we stayed safe. There were certain times where we should not have been safe the way we were. That whole faith thing seemed to... Test the limits. We heard that there was a banana cave that led to the Ark of the Covenant. When you say banana cave... Yeah, they store the bananas there because it's the right humidity and temperature so they don't ripen too fast. Got it. Anyway, so the owner of the cave took us all the way around to show us every nook and cranny of that cave. And we finally came to one door that was locked with a big padlock. And we said, can we go in here? And he said, no, nobody goes in there. But they keep going and keep pushing it and find another way in. And we found one that was barricaded with a fake wall that had bricks that had been put up to make it look like the cave ended there. The next day we came back, there's a gate there to shut and you couldn't even get into the system. Another dead end. This happens over and over. That's part of the push you feel, is that 
you know, as you're getting closer and you're getting on the trail and you're like, it was always feeling like you're right on the verge of the discovery and it never, it never actually happened. And that's kind of the way I felt my whole life in my religion is that you were always on the verge of the end time and, and then it doesn't happen. So then that something else is put out in front of you that now this one. And so you're always living for the end. You're never really living for the present. And now, in December of 99, Adair begins to see herself reflected in those newer pilgrims descending on Israel with their own end times missions, their own prophecies to fulfill. You run into all of those who are the most fervent in their religion. I mean, like, and we, we ran into quite a few John the Baptists and quite a few Elijahs. In fact, quite a few Elijahs. Um, People who thought they were Elijah. People who thought they were reincarnated Jesus Christ. And they were reincarnated as Elijah to bring on the last days, you know. They, they could be called the nutcases, like we could have been called the nutcases. And as they get closer and closer to what was supposed to be the end, the whole reason they came here, the thing they gave up everything back in Michigan for, a strange thing happens. Adair and her family kind of go the other way. Mattia is 15 by then and fluent in Arabic to communicate with the locals. Samora, his sister, tends the animals, which has become a legitimate menagerie. Two or three camels, three donkeys, two horses, a herd of goats, sheep. Chickens. Chickens. Dogs, it was, it was geese, a caravan. Like. Cats, dogs. And instead of finding the Ark of the Covenant, the catalyst for the end of days, they find other things, like cheese. If we were making cheese in a cave... And you have to be able to... Put Sorry, I can't. <laughs> so not only are you making cheese, but you're making it in a cave. Like with driftwood. <laughs> what is you, dri- you got to press it. You have squares of cheesecloth and you put, a, you, put, you put your cheese stuff in the middle and then you fold it up into a square and it has to be pressed between two boards and then you have to angle the board so that the weight drains off and you have to put the proper weight on top. If it's too heavy, I bet Mattia could make cheese today, right now, blindfolded. Like those psycho soldiers in the movies who assemble a pistol from its pieces in 12 seconds flat. And you scoop it out and you put it in the cheesecloth so you make squares of cheese and then you put them... But he's not a psycho. He's just a guy, a kid at the time, who found purpose and beauty in the life they were living. And I didn't really have anybody teach me. I had to watch other people do it. Who were you watching? The Bedouin. You learned to make cheese from Bedouins. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, and butter too. Butter's the craziest thing because you could... T- <laughs> That urgency for the end times, the stridency and absoluteness of the beliefs that had flooded their minds for so long, it recedes. And the life they had built, as weird as it was, that takes its place. I really started loving my life living like that, being with the animals and going and getting the water and the sounds in nature and the smells and the patterns that you see. All of that just became so like beautiful to me. My daughter, she had kept two goose eggs under her armpits and slept at night and hatched those goslings. And those two goslings considered her their mother and they followed her everywhere. Like you start to notice the the way the stars travel at night when you sleep under them every night. And you start to feel the cycle of the sky as a clock. You start to notice things that happen just before the figs come out. So now you know when the figs are coming. 
when the plants would grow and the fruit would come off them, or you'd pick the, the pomelo right off the tree. Adair Levon and her family came for the end. But now, with the millennium finally here, just hours away, they don't want it anymore. Turns out, it's that warm, breezy day right before the end. That's what they wanted. And for a while there, at least, they got to live that day over and over again. So it has, it's very rich. Um, Sheep's milk is more rich than goat's milk. And I think sheep's milk is still isn't quite as rich as cow's milk. Coming up, the end of the world and how I caused it. My millennium story. Twelve thousand years ago, in the Bering Sea, there was a sliver of land connecting Siberia and Alaska. And the people on that sliver of land lived in between the two continents, in neither place. And therefore, nowhere, really. But in between was fine for now. There's some trees, a few mastodons to hunt. No reason to move to one side or the other. The land bridge will be there tomorrow. Decide then. Eventually, sea levels rose, and the land bridge disappeared, forever separating the two continents and the people on them. This, of course, happened slowly, over millennia. That's what they tell you, anyway. But I like to think... I like to think it happened quicker. In a day, a moment, an event like a movie. A Stone Age posse of people just hanging out on that land bridge, and they feel a rumble. And the geological pressure that's been building for so long erupts into a fissure. And the cave people start screaming and scrambling. And as the fall line grows between their feet, they step to one side or the other. And all of a sudden, they're on different continents, but just feet apart. And now, that choice they've been putting off for years, for centuries, they got to make it now. What are you, Siberian or Eskimo? Because if you're an Eskimo, you got to jump. Because that crack in the earth grows by the second. And it's terrifying and awful, but it's also thrilling. This is it. And everyone's screaming louder. And you just can't think about it anymore. Because if you don't do it right now, you'll never have the chance again. For Tom and Susan, the survivalists we met last time. For Otis with the hamsters in Kansas. For Adair Levon and her family in Israel. For them... The millennium was that fissure, that decisive event. Mostly in their heads, it turns out, but no less real, because it forced the issue. It clarified who they were. They made it their reason to jump. And I get it, because I made it my reason too. My millennium story begins with a girl. When did you meet in college? In college, we met in 1994. Think. We both worked at the radio station. Uh, cool. And, yeah. Clearly, Henry was a nerd in college too. Did you have like a crush on her? We had a connection. It was she was just we connected. Two things I remember: we we in college we had to take a, a gym class, like you have to take two physical education classes, and the first one I took was bowling, and the second one I took was riflery. <laughs> so you're getting really fit. Yeah, I know. I was like I was super buff. And I remember we were in this riflery class, and the instructor said, "Okay, everybody, take a knee." And we were standing next to each other, and everybody took a knee, but both our instinct was to grab each other's knee instead. (laughs) And we both did it at the same time. We both just grabbed each other's knees, and we had to leave the class. We were laughing so hard. 
and it was just it was that kind of connection like we were thinking the same and we thought the same things were funny um <laughs> it was great it was she was just it, we connected so it was 98 mm-hmm. you got married yes very nice wedding 125 people yeah it was pretty it was pretty and it was a mistake There used to be a bookstore on 57th Street in Manhattan called Rizzoli. It was on the ground floor of an old mansion, all arches and curves, built a hundred years before at the turn of the previous century. In the months after the wedding, in 1999, I would take long walks there to hide out in the dark, paneled interior, killing time at the big center table of art and photography books. I'd pick up maybe an Ansel Adams and look at the ancient trees and snowscapes, all stark and lonely. And then, oh, what's this? A book of erotic male photography. They had piles of them. Huh, interesting. You know, as a photography buff. I would even put on a silent show for the people around me, actually making a, huh, intriguing face as I flipped through these pictures of naked dudes, keeping my wedding ring out of sight as if the store clerks would care. Judging from my fellow browsers, I can report there were many married photography buffs in Manhattan in 1999. We'll call it a trend. To be clear, this isn't I'm bi. This isn't, yeah, I did some crazy stuff in college, and my wife knows all about it, but we're together now, so... This is I never talked about it with anyone, ever. Not even a diary or a journal. Always have journals, right? I'd never had a shrink. I had quite literally never said it out loud. The reasons why are multitude, and besides the point. Because once I had decided, as a kid, that that is what I wasn't going to be, It was done. Basically, I'm Carrie Russell in The Americans. Super gorgeous with great hair, yes. But also, I had a deep, deep cover. In fact, my cover was so deep that I forgot it was a cover. That it was a choice I had made. Now, in December of 99, a few blocks up from where they're barricading and bomb-proofing Times Square for the onslaught, you would find me. Drinking, probably. Not Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas drinking, but, you know, I get it. The routine of it all used to do the trick. Making dinner for my wife, or reading the Sunday Times on Saturday night. A few gin and tonics and a cops marathon on our enormous TV, as deep as it was wide, that was more than enough to distract me from the impenetrable box I had put myself in, from the harm I was inflicting every day, and from the pressure that was building. And as most of my friends were whatevering the millennium and the bug and all of it, all I could hear was talk of the future, the next thousand years, what tomorrow looks like. And I couldn't see mine. It was a total blank. And if I didn't change that, I'd be a goner. Forget Carrie Russell and the Americans. I don't know where I was going with that. I am Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther. Super handsome and ripped, yes, but also I was the villain. Sure, there were reasons for it, a backstory, but still. I had done something truly awful to someone who I really loved and who had no idea what was coming. I was the bad guy. And so, I did the only thing I knew how to do. I made it way worse. Okay, so now let's get to Michigan. Okay. It's me and Henry again. Okay, you ready? Okay, so December of 1999... So I'm shooting a Daily Show segment in Grand Rapids, Michigan in December. Me and the correspondent, Stacey Woods, uh, were getting ready to leave 
Um, she's going to LA. I'm going to New York. We're in the airport. Uh, she takes off. I get snowed in. My flight gets canceled. So now I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan alone. Um, and I head back to the hotel. Um, and I, uh, I don't remember how at the time I would know where it was, but I found a dirty bookstore. Um, why? I was alone. I was, um, you're not even in your own home. Like nobody will ever see you. I don't know anybody in this place. And I'm sorry. I'm just going to, I'm so just going to talk Grand about this. Grand Rapids, Michigan on a random night. And it was yeah, and this is where gay people and and closeted people are going to have encounters with people. Keep describing it. Literally, like you know how they have like Hell House, like in really conservative communities, like on Halloween, they have like Hell House. You know, this is what a gay bar looks like. Don't go in here; you're gonna go to hell. Like he was literally the evangelical nightmare of what gay people do. It was scary and. And everything was echoey. There's smoke everywhere because people smoke everywhere at the time. Uh, and there's videos, weird videos of gay people having sex. Uh, there's graffiti in the walls and there's glory holes where people are sticking their dicks in and then people give them blowjobs from the other side. You went from zero to 60 real quick. I'm sorry if this is really graphic, Henry. I'm just going to go for it, right? I mean, in your life. Yeah. Yeah. This is all just me peeking my head in. Again, not really an internet. I don't really know that this is happening. I've never really been to a gay bar. And... I don't remember how it happened. I don't remember the context of it. Um, all of a sudden, um, this guy's giving me a blowjob. And it's over in like 10 seconds. <laughs> Enough said. Uh, and he and and then, of course, you just want to get I, you just you just want to run. And you're a married man on a business trip. I'm a married man on a business trip. And I have just felt, uh, it's not passion, it's sex, it's gross. But it's like, I felt what people were talking about. I'm getting closer to that line of like acknowledging that this is like a real part of me that is not ignorable, that is actually a thing that is actually the core of you and not just this weird thing. Like I'm depressed, I'm drinking, I have this gay experience. Um, about a week later, it starts to burn when I pee. And I think I got a motherfucking STD from this guy. And I've since had sex with my wife. Oh, God. Did you think you gave her an STD? I did then. Now I'm trapped. I have to tell her. I have to say something. It was gonna happen. It was gonna happen. I, I would not have survived. Uh, and so it was gonna happen. I just think that it, the fact that it happened then, it all felt like a funnel. And, and, and the New Year's was that funnel and everything was just swirling towards it. I spend the next week finishing up work for the year, sitting in joke meetings, which seemed like the joke in itself. I actually spent several afternoons in the last pew of St. Malachi's on 49th Street, for Christ's sake. Just me and the old ladies, with scars on their heads. I spend the few days before Christmas with my father-in-law, just the two of us, in his basement, building a bookshelf together as a gift for my wife, the whole time knowing I'll never get to see it used for myself. On New Year's Eve, my wife has to work. 
So, while six billion people get ready to ring in the new millennium, while Tom and Susan, the survivalists from last time, lie by their radio in the dirt, listening for the apocalypse, and Dave Eddy, the computer coder, the Y2K salesman, camps out at that 1800s living history village, waiting for the lights to flicker. And while Bob Loblaw is practically crawling into his Canadian computer screens, searching for news of the bug. And while Adair Levon and her family are watering the camels, not noticing any of it, because they of all people don't want the end anymore. While they're all there, I am here, in New York, the last night of the second millennium. I spend it with two friends, a couple, they're still married actually, at a club that was once cool, but by then is not, and by now is gone. A party hat, some noisemakers, and a glass of champagne at midnight for like eight gazillion dollars a head, I'm sure. It's loud, and it's packed. Brain foggy, ears ringing, dick on fire, and gravity getting stronger by the minute, pulling my head down to the table to my folded arms to try and quiet my mind so I could plot so I could work out the mechanics of how exactly I would push through the only thin sliver of an out I had left coming clean admitting it all tomorrow day one Coming up this season, the third millennium finally arrives, and all the preparing in the world wouldn't prepare Y2K salesman Dave Eddy for how it all went down. I was not going to go down in history as Paul Revere. Same for Canadian whistleblower Bob Loblaw. You got conned, and I told you so. And also for Susan and Tom, the survivalists. That became the most important thing that I've ever done in my life. And Adair Levant and her family. Why didn't I ask myself, is this really who I am? And also, for me. But before that, it's New Year's Eve. On the next episode of Surviving Y2K, birth, love, and the subtle art of hostage negotiation. Three stories that all play out in those final hours before midnight. I was in love with this woman, and she was in Berlin, and I was going to, like, kidnap her. I'm already rooting for you. She said, you are going to have the Millennium Baby. And I was like, whoa, do not have this baby, not tonight. And at one point she says, okay, y'all need to call your family and tell them to cancel your New Year's Eve plans. Yeah, no kidding. And stood with the gun to our head while we made the phone call. That's next time. Headlong Surviving Y2K is produced by Henry Malofsky. And me, I'm Dan Tabersky. Our associate producers are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Ben Phelan. Ben also does research and fact-checking. Joel Lovell is our editor. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our theme song is Burns by George Fitzgerald, courtesy of Domino Recording and Publishing Company. Music clearance by Dan Kanishkui. This episode was mixed by Martin Johnson at Soundtelling in Sweden. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The team at Topic Studios is Tal Malad and Lisa Leingang. And a special thanks to Adam Pincus. You can also find Headlong on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us and check out more podcasts from Topic at topic.com slash podcasts. Hey, quick favor. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It means a lot, and it's also a nice way to let other people discover the show. Thanks. 
And finally, what is your Y2K story? We've been getting tons of calls, but we want more. We set up a special voicemail for you to tell us. Call us at 949-639-9Y2K. Leave a message and tell me a story, and we may just use it on the show. That's 949-639-9925. We'll see you back here next week, the last night of the second millennium. If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com headlong and use promo code headlong.